now we have a segue into other things. <laughs> there you go. I'm a great conversationalist. I don't know if you knew that about me, but um, I, I am the master of non-awkward segue. <laughs> <laughs> So why don't, man, um, Tim, why don't we just get you to um, introduce yourself? Because I'm really, really excited. I, I have to, t actually, before I let you even say a word, I need to tell you that we have wanted, we've constantly said to each other every season since I think the end of season three, oh, we need to get him on. Tim has to be on the show. So who are you? And why do we love you so much? Um... Well, I can tell you who I am. Uh, I think the reason you like me so much is because I do things a little bit differently. And I think you guys seem to like that. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so I'm Tim. Uh, I guess, you know, I, uh, I have, wear a couple different hats. So uh, I blog as the Sustainable Economist. Um, so I started that blog probably like six or seven years ago now. Just really when I was trying to figure out how to invest my own money. Uh, I got an early in inheritance from my grandpa and was figuring out sort of the, the whole do-it-yourself investing. How was I going to do sort of seven or eight K in a TFSA? And, um, you know, everything kept pointing me to this idea of do-it-yourself investing using ETFs. Definitely wanted to cut the banks out of the equation. Um, but for me, sustainability has, is a big part of my life. It's been a big part of my school. It's, it's certainly... Uh, a core part of my identity. So when I looked at the companies inside a lot of those traditional ETFs, these index funds, like it kind of made me gag. Like I would just see companies in there that I just know how evil they are, frankly. And um, I just didn't want anything to do with that. So I started researching socially responsible and green ETFs. At that time, there were only a handful. There weren't very many of them at all. Um, but I did find a few of them. And uh, I started writing about it. I created my first model portfolio. I sort of stole from Dan Bartolotti and uh, uh, created the organic couch potato portfolio. And you know, I posted it on his site. He had done a post called, he called it the ethical couch potato. And I was like, I can do better than this. So in the comment section, I posted just a link to my site. And he saw it and right away was like, this is awesome. I love it. You know, let me write about you for money sense. And, um, and so it just kind of started. And, and what happened is people kept reaching out to me saying, Tim, how do I do this? I love what you're talking about. I love the values piece. I want to invest in this manner, but I have really no idea what an ETF is. And I would be really scared to manage my money online. So uh, I started looking at this fee-for-service model and I really just started helping people one by one. And fast forward to last year, so it was last October, that I launched my new brand which is called Good Investing, and really kind of formalized this process uh, whereby I offer fee-for-service financial planning. I call myself an investment coach because I don't really do sort of broader planning and I don't do cash flow or retirement planning. I'm really focused on the investment side and basically developed a process where uh, education and empowerment, and I teach people about ETFs and how they work. We look at the companies inside, we sort of open them up and look at the holdings. And I get people to either give it a thumbs up or a thumbs sideways or a thumbs down from an ethical perspective. And anytime it's a thumbs down, I have a backup option. And so basically I create custom portfolios and then working with clients, I don't provide any advice, of course, uh, but I provide the research in terms of what's inside. 
And so the result is that I've done probably more than 200 different sustainable portfolios. Um, I've done a vegan portfolio. Uh, I've worked with an anarchist who really didn't like capitalism at all, but knew that you know they had to invest their money. Um, so it's really you know found all these different perspectives, all these different sort of value sets, and that um, really that's kind of my day to day right now is is I teach people how to invest online according to their values. I. I am completely sidetracked by trying to imagine what the anarchist portfolio looks like. <laughs> um, it was because we know I, t I have burn it down tendencies. So it was pretty specific. Well, so we had to. There were a lot of conversations. There was a whole because, and I get a lot of people who are like really worried about climate change and who think the whole like system's about ready to collapse, and they're just like Tim, like what happens if it all falls apart? And my response to that is always, well, in that scenario, like you've got bigger fish to fry. Like it doesn't really matter what's in your RSP or TFSA. I was like, what we're gonna do is plan for in case there's not a collapse. Because I have worked with clients who are like old school, like hippies who are now in their 60s, who thought it was gonna crash. And so they kept their money in cash and GICs like their whole life. And now they're like 62. And they've got like maybe like three or four hundred thousand dollars saved up, but they never invested it. So it's only three or four hundred thousand dollars, which is not enough for them to retire off of. And they're just pulling their hair out saying, oh, no, you know, am I screwed? So, you know, for me, it was really with the anarchist. It was definitely the deep sustainability. It was definitely more of the what I call doing more good versus the other approach, which is sort of doing less evil. So mm -hmm. it was kind of more focused on it, a little riskier definitely, but more kind of focused on green technologies and on, uh, on sort of those kind of impact investments. And that, um, but really this was their like, you know, their safety net in case it doesn't crash. <laughs> in case nothing burns down. In case, in case society is still around when they retire. It was a couple. And um, yeah, and so it was just, but it was, you know, it was really cool and, and definitely pushed me in terms of developing solutions. And what I find is that it's when people give me that thumbs down, that's what forces the creativity where I kind of have to go back and do some research and figure out a way to be able to get them market rate returns uh, in a way that doesn't sort of uh, impede on their values. So I, I think that you have walked me through your process because it's not just, and you kind of touched on that a little bit, it's not just, here's your portfolio. You talk a lot about you. I mean, you educate people through a very specific set of steps. Oh yeah. So can, can you walk us through those? Yeah. You want, sure. You totally. want my first steps. Uh, so step one is a client questionnaire and I get people to do, and it's a kind of a typical, I'm sure every financial planner has their questionnaire, but I have some different questions in there. So certainly around the value side, you know, what's a deal breaker? What's just definitely, do you want to uh, uh, eliminate from your portfolio? And then also, you know, what are the things that you're passionate about? I ask questions like, uh, you know, describe the world that you want to retire into, right? So often we're thinking about this a retirement plan. It might be a time horizon of 20, 30, 40 years. What does the world look like when you want to retire? Um, ask a question. I love this question. It's if you won the lottery tonight, what would you do differently tomorrow? And that tells me how happy someone is at their job. 
because if they're like i would change everything and i would quit my job and i would like upend my whole life and change everything i'm like mm, okay this person might be going through a midlife crisis soon <laughs> whereas if it's really they're like oh i kind of keep doing the same thing you know might give some more money to charity but you know would keep my then it's like okay it's going to be a little more stable and the uh, uh the second step is the educational process so this is really an, I do it experientially, uh, where we learn about ETFs by opening up ETFs and looking at what's inside. So I kind of take people on a tour of the first one and explain basically line by line, all the different terms, the acronyms. You know, I do cut out a lot of the noise and focus on the, the expressions that are sort of the more relevant, but teach them how to read the performance, right? Show them. And then where we spend a lot of time is the holdings. And that, you know, for the most part, this is kind of the, the, the really sort of the meat of the process here where, um, and for a custom portfolio, we actually go through the economy sector by sector. So I go like and do a global real estate, global healthcare, global industrials, consumer discretion, consumer stables, like all the different sectors. It's a little tedious, but it teaches them that language and it allows them to actually see the companies inside and people get a real sort of gut reaction when they see specific companies, right? And that's really what I'm looking for because if you see like one that comes up all the time is Nestle. Canadians hate Nestle. Like it's just, it's hilarious. It's, you know, to me it's kind of, you know, and it's tricky because they have a decent sustainability score. There's a whole research body of evidence and, you know, they look at different companies and they actually score pretty highly, but Canadians hate Nestle. And so oftentimes that would be in consumer staples. And we open up consumer staples and they see Nestle and they see Walmart and they see Philip Morris and other tobacco companies. And they're just like, no, thumbs down. I'm really looking for that reaction. Um, that step really tells me kind of where they draw a line in the sand. From there, the next choice is, or the next step is making choices. So we go back through the economy sector by sector and that um, I showed them different ETFs. And I've done you know, all the research to be able to show all the different ETFs, whether it's iShares, BMO, Vanguard, like whatever, they're in my database. And we, you know, obviously the fees. And that for the sectors that are either thumbs sideways, like they can tolerate it, or if it's a thumbs up, then I just get them to choose an ETF. Most of the time it's the cheapest one, but sometimes there'll be a reason why they might prefer a different one. Um, and then for the sectors where it's a thumbs down, that's where we dig in right? We might look at, at subsector ETFs, right? Uh, sometimes we'll use that sustainability research and look at individual companies within that sector. Um, but the goal is to have a nice diversified portfolio where they get exposure to all sectors, right? In a way that they do ethically feel comfortable with. Uh, once we've gone through that process, we now know their, we have their custom pie chart. They know every single thing that they're buying. Uh, that's when we talk about percentages. And I, I am allowed to provide some guidance there. But honestly, I usually just use like the All Country World Index and I just use a proxy to be able to sort of guide that. Um, and then the last step is for them to do the paperwork, uh, open up the online brokerage account, uh, transfer their assets into the account. And then the last step of my process is actually doing the trading. So I get people to meet with me over Skype and share their screen with me. And I kind of sit there with them and hold their hand um, the first time they do trades, which is a hilarious meeting. Like I love the energy of this meeting because people are so nervous and they come to it and they're just like, you know, and I can just feel their heart rate is a little heavier, a little quicker. 
And then it's like they do the first trade, they buy the first ETF and they're like, that's it? Like, that's so easy. And I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm, that's how it works. And they're like, why doesn't everybody do this? And I was like, well, you know, keep in mind, we did the research, we had to figure, decide what we we're gonna buy. You know, I've got an Excel spreadsheet that does the math, how much we're gonna buy and you know, all that stuff. So make it as easy as possible. But overwhelmingly, like the reaction I get from people is like, wow, that was a lot easier than I thought it would be. And I gotta tell you, like the feeling that they get of empowerment when they actually invest their money and they, they know exactly what they bought and, you know, when people, as you know, probably kind of develop some relationships to specific ETFs or companies. So when we talk about things like clean technology or renewable energy, they'll get kind of excited about that one. And um, yeah, and it's just a really cool energy when people actually make that trade. Um, so from there, what we do is usually, you know, it's kind of set it and forget it. We just sit. It's very much a passive approach. And then we meet up again in like six months or a year. And I walk them through the rebalancing process. Uh, I've developed a really nice Excel spreadsheet that's my rebalancing tool. Uh, I kind of stole it from uh, uh, Carrie Taylor, Squawk Box. She had like <laughs> a really simple one. And then obviously my portfolios are more complex just because of the sustainability piece. So I had to like, you know, add a column for US dollars and all this different stuff and, you know, kind of had to modify it. But it just makes life so much easier uh, when it comes to doing that rebalancing math. Mm -hmm. Yeah. John, did you get that reaction when you when you had back before you had developed your course? That yeah, so um, that that last piece of sort of sitting with people while they set up their account and make their first trade that used to be like my entire side business, uh, yeah. and that was what inspired me to write the book and then create the online course because that's a big barrier for people. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, like a lot of people, it is super scary. Like don't downplay. Like you, you talked about the relief they feel afterward and how they they feel confident and empowered to do it. And there is definitely that feeling of empowerment before they do it. It is terrifying. Yeah. And so that's why they want someone to sit there. And that's like yeah. a huge value add to have someone sit there on Skype or sit there beside them on the couch while they go and click these things and make sure that they're doing it all right. And then once yeah. they do three or four or five of those, then they're, they're off to the races and, and good it. to go. And that's it. Yeah, that's huge value add. Um, so the other part of your process, I mean, that also sounds like a great service because one of the big criticisms with socially responsible investing is that everyone's version of what ethical or socially responsible or organic or whatever term you want to put to it is different. Like, I don't know how many people I've heard, must be in the dozens or maybe even hundreds by now, who said that they want to go with you know, one of the Jancy social indexes or one of the yeah. robo-advisors uh, socially responsible portfolios because they don't want any of their money going toward oil sands. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's oh. one of the biggest components. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will, I am excited to report that actually Vanguard just released their first ESG ETFs about uh, two or three weeks ago. And it's really cool because it's socially responsible but it also gets rid of the fossil fuel companies. So it does get rid of tire sands. So it's really interesting seeing the evolution in this space where there are more and more products that are coming out, different definitions. But, you know, most people who care about these issues, the last thing they care about are like ETFs, right? And the sort of financial piece. 
So that's why for me, you know, doing the survey and then doing that educational piece, it really allows me to just basically do like a decision tree where mm -hmm. if it's thumbs down on, you know, on oil and gas, if it's thumbs down on, you know, something like fracking, then a lot of those standard socially responsible ETFs aren't going to cut it for them. So it was really, it was, it was clients. There was one client in particular, she came to me very early on. Um, she was, uh, uh, her job was as a, uh, basically a professional sort of activist um, and engagement, doing engagement around stopping pipelines. And she was like paid by a nonprofit to organize volunteers. And she was like, Tim, no fossil fuels, like not one penny. And it really made me scratch my head. I had my organic couch potato portfolio there. And I was just like, geez, how am I going to do this? And then uh, it was actually, I was in Moose Factory, Ontario. And uh, I went up there, I was staying at a place called the, the Cree Village Eco Lodge, one of the most sustainable hotels in the whole world. And it's in Moose Factory, Ontario, and no one's ever heard of it. And um, I was staring out at the frozen river and it dawned on me. And it was those, I don't know if you've seen them, I'm sure, but it was like the spider, the select spider sector ETFs. And they had this commercial where it's like, the eight legs of the spider represent the eight sectors of the economy or something like that. And I was like, I can do global sectors. And so basically what I figured out how to do was like pull certain legs off the spider. So I'd like pull off energy and pull off mining, right? And then replace them with green energy and replace it with water infrastructure. And that essentially what we could do is still have the global diversification, still have the sector diversification, but be really specific about what sectors we're gonna remove from the portfolio. Um, and so that's when I created the fossil fuel free portfolio. And that's really the model that I've used for these custom portfolios is that we just go through and like everyone has a different definition. And I think a lot of people get stuck there. Um, for me, it was just, it, it was, it's, it's a very human thing. And so it was just a puzzle to solve. And that to me, the easiest way uh, using the tools available is going global sector by sector. What do you do for fixed income? Uh, so for fixed income, we do mostly government bonds. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the like doing less evil part. We just get rid of corporate bonds. Um, especially in Canada, you need to be really careful because, you know, so we rely on these credit rating agencies, which obviously grain of salt after the crisis. And that one thing that I think they're really missing the, the ball on is uh, carbon risk. So this whole idea of stranded carbon and carbon bubble, and if we're serious about climate change, we're going to have to leave a lot of it underground. And like this has been profiled as like one of the biggest risks to Canada's economy in the long term. Now in the short term, like it's not going anywhere, right? I don't think some cores, but when we're looking at a 20 year, 30 year, 40 year horizon, like I don't know if you guys saw that IPCC report that came out last week on the severity of climate change. But like we need to act now. And so in that scenario, if governments and society takes the climate change seriously, um, we're going to see a lot of stranded assets. And those will be pipelines that won't have capacity. Those will be, you know, fossil fuel companies that are going to see their reserves get written, those assets written off. They'll become toxic assets. So, you know, in that scenario, it's, it, I don't, really don't think the bond rating agencies have priced that risk in. Mm. So Canadians have huge exposure. If you own corporate bonds, John, like you said, like what percentage of a Canadian fixed income portfolio is carbon intensive 
or is financials, which is also carbon intensive, then you know there's a lot of risks there. So we do just government bonds is the easiest thing. Um, it's funny, some clients don't like federal bonds. Um, a, it was bigger when Stephen Harper was prime minister. <laughs> um, but B, because uh, Justin Trudeau just bought a pipeline, mm. right? And also that it does fund military, so people really don't like military. So in that case, they're provincial bond ETFs, and we can do just provincial bond ETFs. Um, but yeah, so we do just government bonds for like the doing less evil, and then for the doing more good, there's this really cool suite of options. Uh, we call them sort of impact investments. These are going to be community bonds, solar bonds, green bonds, microfinance, which to me is like an absolute world-changing, brilliant idea. Um, and so what we do is typically carve out part of the portfolio for those uh, impact bonds. Um, you want to be careful with them because they do tend to be locked in, so they're not liquid. So, you know, you want to be really careful about what percentage of your portfolio, but they tend to earn a higher return. Like I'm earning 5% on my solar bond right now. I have another community bond that's paying me 4.5% annually, which is like a great coupon. And then um, in addition to that, we just have government bond ETFs that provide that stability and it's totally liquid. So if there's a crash, you know, they would perform like a traditional bond ETF would in our portfolio. Smart, super yeah. smart. Yeah. What do you tell people who get upset about having their national pension plan invested in for-profit prisons? Ooh, so uh, I actually provided a comment on that today to a reporter from the Canadian press. What did you say? Um, so what I said is that there, this is a big problem and that CPPIB actually has a policy that says that they will not own companies that if, if the, the, the product or the service is not legal in Canada. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I think there are some big, big issues with what these for-profit businesses are doing that would be against Canadian law. Um, so I was able to actually kind of use CPP's uh, policies against them. For what it's worth, CPP does have a very good sustainable investment policy. Um, it's not, I mean, I'm not going to say it goes far enough for sort of a lot of people and certainly for me, but, um, you know, I'll give them credit where credit is due. They're looking at these issues. They've acknowledged that there is a link between, uh, uh, it's the acronym is ESG, environmental social governance issues and profitability. So they kind of, they get it to some degree. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, this is a big problem and I think that, uh, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out over the next little bit. I mean, I'm just excited people are talking about the pension plan, right? Like, how often is this a topic in the news, let alone like the ethical implications? But, you know, it's encouraging for me. This is coming up more and more and more. Um, you know, earlier in the year, it was around guns. There was another school shooting and it was about guns in the portfolio. And so I got on uh, uh, CTV's Your Morning and, you know, and it's obviously climate change, like more and more, there's this whole carbon tax debate that's happening right now and, you know, big political issue. So um, for me, you know, it's, it's, it's great to be able to get that exposure. But like, I mean, I look at those companies and I couldn't, I wouldn't feel good at night sleeping if I own shares in those companies. Like some, I mean, that's looking at that. When I saw those stories about kids being separated from their parents, like it broke my heart. And to think that there would be, you know, I would be profiting from, you know, separating fan, like it just, ugh, it's one of those absolute heartbreakers that, 
for me, it's, it's those issues that really kind of highlight the need for people to be aware. Like, you know, there are probably so many Canadians that were posting about it on Facebook and were, you know, organizing against, uh, uh, you know, Trump's policies there and yet had no idea that that was in their investment portfolio. Yeah. Can we just go, let's just address one thing that it's a misconception that I see across the entire spectrum of, of experience or knowledge in investing, which is this idea that, um, you know, at its core, sustainable or um, socially responsible investing is about, um, is about withholding money from the companies that we disagree with fundamentally. And so and not investing that in them is somehow a punishment to them. And well, that's not really going to work. Can, can you just sort of maybe yeah. dig right into what the real issue is here with sustainable investing? Yeah. So are you talking about like in terms of the, the actual impact on the market? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I get, and again, I get these criticisms like all the time, deal with it a lot. Um, big thing is that when it comes to buying and selling shares, it's a secondary market. So I'm not actually buying it from the company unless it's an IPO, which is like so rare, you know, that I'm buying it on a market, I'm buying it from someone else. If I'm selling these shares, someone else is buying them. So often in case this, you know, the strategy that you're, you've described is divestment when we're selling off those assets. And first I want to be clear, there are other strategies. So there is a strategy around engagement, which is like actually owning the shares and pushing the company in a more sustainable direction. Things like proxy voting, which I think can have an impact, but when it comes to something like for-profit business or for-profit prisons, like you're, they're not going to change their business model. Like, let's be real. <laughs> to me, that strategy is at the window. So what it comes down to is the invisible hand of the market. That yes, me with my, you know, piddly little RSP and TFSA, I'm not going to be moving the markets. If I sell all my shares in whatever, like it's not going to make a difference. But as a collection, as a, as a collective, you know, sort of movement, um, you know, it's all about supply and demand. So as we reduce demand for their shares, um, what we do is we do see the price of those shares go down. Um, what we, what that does is it limits the ability of the company to be able to issue more shares and to be able to issue debt because the bond markets are often linked to stock performance, right? And so that really what we're doing is we're raising the cost of capital for those companies. We're making it more expensive for them to raise money, for them to be able to expand their operations. Really what it comes down to is the invisible hand of the market, right? It's the same way that like, I'm not going to make a difference by choosing, if I just choose to buy my fair trade coffee, that's not going to make a difference. But when we get Starbucks doing it and we get, you know, Timothy's and we get second cup and we get now, like if you look at fair trade coffee, like this is now mainstream, we have revolutionized that supply chain for coffee right now. It hasn't, it's not hundred percent. It's not like everybody's doing this, but most people, I think like now probably more than half the coffee market is, I'd want to check my math on that, but it's had a real impact. And so for me in the same way, you know, it's not if, if the three of us change our money, okay, so be it. But when we look at iShares taking a stand on this and BlackRock, you know, and iShares now offering socially responsible. If we look at Vanguard and the fact that they now have ETFs and, you know, in my experience, these socially responsible and sustainable ETFs do just as well, if not a little bit better 
than their traditional counterparts, right? Like the Jancy Social Index that you mentioned earlier, John, has outperformed the TSX 60 over the last, you know, uh, uh, I think it's like 10, 12 years. So, you know, it's the type of thing where really the only way this is going to have a, 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 a tangible impact on the market is for us to kind of see that tipping point where this does become a default way to invest, where groups like CPPIB are doing this analysis and are going to be excluding these companies. And that when we start to see sort of uh, uh, institutional investors and like large scale mainstream retail investors, like where everybody's doing it, now we're in a situation where companies are competing with each other to have a higher sustainability score in order to attract those dollars. The companies that are the laggards that have the biggest risks are going to see their share prices depressed, which is going to lower their uh, ability to raise capital and expand their operations. Um, and really what it comes down to in a lot of this stuff is about the psychology. So we talk a lot, a lot about the word is denormalization. And, you know, I want you to think back to tobacco, right? And it wasn't that long ago where it was like you'd go to a bar and like everyone was smoking in the bar, right? And it was just gross. It was disgusting, right? Like it was just nasty. And that now, you know, when we look at, at, at smoking and certainly with younger generations, people don't really smoke cigarettes anymore. And a big part of that was because we basically created a stigma associated with uh, uh, tobacco, with smoking. Right. And part of that was this divestment movement, pushing people to sell their shares in tobacco. So when it comes to a lot of these industries, you know, I want to be clear, the sustainable investing, it's not a silver bullet. It's not like this is if everyone does this magically, we're going to have a sustainable economy and we're going to solve climate change and there won't be any more human rights abuses. Like, no, this is part of the puzzle. And I would argue it's a very effective and a very important sort of systems change. Um, but that really this is, this is part of the equation and that more than anything else, I would say it's something that people can actually do and take control of in their lives. Um, I'm really struggling right now. I mean, you know, watching this like Kavanaugh thing last month was just like horrible and like with climate change, like this report and we've got Doug Ford here just moving us backwards and like, it's just, it's depressing for me. And that I'm really looking for ways and things that I can do in my life to be able to have an impact and make a difference. And this is a really important and a really valuable thing that people can do that often is going to save them money, especially if they're in mutual funds, right? Like to be able to take control and shift it to an online portfolio. It's a no brainer financially, but also it's going to make me feel empowered that I'm actually doing something in terms of making the world a better place. So, I mean, one of the other arguments is, would you be doing more if instead of putting your effort into creating this, you know, somewhat more complex portfolio to manage and set up, and instead just organize, using your time to organize a run for the Princess Margaret Cancer Center, that will fight lung cancer and save more lives than trying to get uh, the tobacco companies defunded, for example. Well, but I mean, I guess like if I was a professional activist, okay, maybe there'd be a debate there, but it really doesn't cost me any time or money or effort really divesting from tobacco. It's pretty simple. My process is like 10 hours from start to finish, right? And that's like one time in your life, right? Once it's set up, it's kind of set it and forget it, right? So to me, it's like, it's like get rid of tobacco from your portfolio and organize that run, right? Like it's not like we have too much scarcity there. 
So again, like, I'm not going to say this is a silver bullet, but it's like, if you care about these issues such that like, you're going to organize a run and you're going to donate money and you're going to like get excited because, you know, you really care about, you know, uh, 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 beating cancer, right? To me, it's just like, why would you own that in your portfolio? Like, it's just, I, that's the disconnect there. I do see a lot of people, you know, they talk about maximizing returns and then donating the money. And they're like, oh, that's going to be my strategy. But to me, it's again, it's like both and. Like, actually, I'm showing you can make, do just as well, if not better, doing the sustainable investing. And then you can still donate. Like, no one's telling you. I'm not saying don't donate any money here. Like, I'd love to talk. Let's, let's set you up with a donor-advised fund, John. You know what I mean? Like, we can, we can have some fun with this. Uh, to me, this is an additional strategy that people can do, um, but it's one that is often very overlooked. And like straight up, I see a lot of wealthy people that are really passionate about social and environmental issues um, who do a lot of things and put a lot of energy and effort into a lot of different causes, and they just have never thought about their portfolio. And like I'm talking not only individuals, but also like foundations, right? Where it's like I've seen a lot of foundations here in Canada that give a lot of money to causes. And then when you look at their investments, they're actually participating in the problem. They're like profiting from the problems and then to fund the solution. And it's like, you're wondering why we're not making enough progress on these things. So to me, it's really, it's, you know, it's, it's another tool sort of in the tool belt um, for people who already care about these issues. It's a way to take it sort of one step further and kind of put your money where your mouth is. And even then, I mean, the other argument that I've heard, uh, I saw this probably was on the post that was talking about you on Dan Bortolotti's site, which is, uh, you know, sometimes having that impact, even if you don't, like, that's not always the point. It's that you want to be able to sleep at night knowing what you're totally. invested in. Totally. That's it. And I mean, for me, it's really, it does kind of come down to that personal issue. And a lot of people are just happy keeping their head in the sand. You know, they don't want to think about it. But often there's like something that happens in people's lives where they're just kind of, they're forced to sort of shine a light on their investments. And I think this, you know, the, the private prisons and CPP is one of those times. And that once you see it, like you can't turn, you can't not see it, right? Like if you care about these issues and you're just like, geez, that's in there, you know, that's something that is really going to eat away at people. Um, and so for me, it's just trying to make the solution as easy and painless as possible. Obviously, the portfolios are going to be more complex. And the further down that sustainability rabbit hole you want to go, the more complex it's going to get. Um, but I mean, for me, it's, it's, and it's also, you know, the cool thing just to bring it back to the more traditional side, but like, I think all of us here are very much aligned in knowing that Canadians kind of need to wake up when it comes to the mutual fund industry and like how much of a ripoff that is, right? Mm -hmm. And that oftentimes people just don't, like they kind of can't be bothered. And they're just like, man, you know, for whatever reason, especially when markets are good, they're like, oh, well, it's doing well, so I won't worry about switching it now. But this is actually a really big impetus for people to kind of make that shift to an ETF portfolio is that, because not only is it the financial piece, but it's like once they see that, oh, geez, really? You know, like this company's in there? Oh, no, I can't have that. That I've met so many people that like honestly would have just owned the high fee mutual funds, couldn't be bothered 
but it was because of the ethical implications that they decided to take control of it. And obviously, as you guys know, you've seen the math on the compound returns. Like that's one of the best decisions they've ever made. So I think this has become for a lot of people sort of that, that impetus, it kind of lights that fire to be able to consider making a switch. I have two questions for you. Sure. Number one, so people who are activated, who really yeah. thought like, oh, this is my wake up call. What, what do they need to do to get in touch with you? Yeah, uh, so the easiest thing is just go to my website, goodinvesting.com. There's like a little sign up button. Um, people can just sign up. Everyone gets a free consultation. So this is kind of one of my core values. It's like, I'll talk to anyone for free. And that a lot of people, sometimes they just need like, it's just, it's, it's a really simple conversation. And you know, and they already, they, they have a good setup or if they don't really want to do it themselves, sometimes it's just kind of nudging them to have that conversation with their advisor and be like, okay, I'm going to give you a script. Here's what you're going to say. Here's the word you're going to use. And make it clear that if they don't do what you say, you're going to leave, right? And then they'll leave me like, damn, it worked, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, sometimes that's, that's really all it takes. Um, but the easiest thing is just contact me, you know, set up a free Skype call. Um, really, that's when we'll kind of talk about where people are at. If they decide they want to do the, the sort of DIY portfolio, then obviously I'm fully set up with a package to help them with that. Um, but if people can't be bothered and they want a manager, I also know some really good full service, sustainable portfolio managers. So I have no problem, you know, putting them in touch with someone that will sort of get the job done for them. That's super. Here's my next question. You ready? If you want a ludicrous amount of money in the lottery tomorrow, what would you do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've thought about this one, Sandy. I've thought about this a lot. Uh, so I've, I need my fuck off fund. Mm -hmm. which I pegged at about $4 million. Okay. Well, it's ludicrous. Million, so can, half of it's gone to taxes, right? So I get 2 million left and that I can invest that easy 5%. I can live off of hundred K every year for the rest of my life and have zero worries. So that's number one. Uh, I would then take the rest of the money um, and I'd set up my own personal foundation. Um, and obviously I would invest it, uh, you know, in a very ethical manner. And, you know, and make sure that it was sort of a, a beacon. And I would really highlight the investment returns. I'd like to sort of prove that this is a way to actually make just as good, if not better money. Um, and then for me, you know, I've looked at a lot of these uh, uh, climate solutions, human rights issues, you know, all these different things. And the same issue keeps popping up over and over and over across all different uh, areas, which is that uh, young girls need access to education around the world. And that to me, it's like, it's whether it's here in Ontario and in low income communities, you know, first nation communities, whether it's in, uh, you know, poor countries where a lot of kids, you know, their families can't afford to send them to school. So they're forced into the workforce at a very young age, but it's just over and over and over the one, like the one silver bullet to like all of the world's social, environmental, economic issues is like access to the best education for young women around the world. I didn't think I could like you more. <laughs> I was proven wrong. I'm wrong every day. Now I'm wrong again. You're fantastic. <laughs> it's wild. I mean, the more I look at it, it's like in terms of climate change, right? And it's like a big thing is overpopulation. When women have access to education, 
they have more opportunity, they have fewer kids. And it's like, that's a big part of it in terms of human rights issues. When kids, you know, especially women have access to education, right? It's like we see human rights abuses go down dramatically. And straight up economically, like one thing that drives me nuts, everyone, you know, talking a lot about carbon tax these days. And every, I, I get some trolls that are like, oh, it's wealth redistribution, right? This is a huge problem. We need, you know, you're trying to redistribute wealth. You're part of this globalist agenda. And I'm like, well, first of all, like, do you know how interest rates work? Like the default settings that wealth gets redistributed from the poor to the rich, right? Like that's how the system works. So if you have an issue with wealth redistribution, like let's talk about interest rates and usury. Um, but the second piece is that uh, low-income people have a much higher, it's an economic term called the marginal propensity to consume versus the marginal propensity to save, which means if I give you know, a low-income person $1,000, they're much more likely to spend it rather than save it. Whereas you know, a super rich person, they get that $1,000 tax cut, they're gonna save it rather than spend it. Guess what drives our economy? So it's like legit, like the biggest thing we could do for global growth and more prosperity and like economic growth globally is like give poor people more money. That they'll spend it. And don't tell them what to spend it on, they know. Like they know how to spend their own money. But like give people that money and it's like that's how we're gonna grow the economy uh, globally. So it's just, you know, it's just really cool for me that, you know, as I've learned more, I kind of started as a tree hugger and seeing it a lot of sort of environmental issues and like, we got to save the polar bears, guys. And that now, you know, I've realized uh, intersectionality and so much of the, how complicated these issues are. And really, it's, it's to be an environmentalist is kind of a privilege because it means that I've got all my basic needs sorted and that, you know, I can look after myself and I'm not in really any danger. And there are a lot of people that just simply don't have that privilege. So really, you know, looking at those issues, it's just it very much is that intersectionality of sort of environmental issues, what's best for the environment, social issues, what's best for people, and economic issues, what's gonna actually help our global economy grow. It has been a true pleasure to have <laughs> you on the show, <laughs> finally. <laughs> we'll have you back sometime when we can have Chris and Kate also just yeah. ask in getting to talk to you. <laughs> that was needlessly fawning. I mean, come on. <laughs> You're sweet. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. I'm Chris Entz, and I'm an advice-only financial planner at ragstoreasonable.com. And I'm Sandy Martin. I'm an advice-only financial planner at springplans.ca. I'm John Robertson. I'm the author of The Value of Simple, a practical guide to taking the complexity out of investing, and you can find my blog at holypotato.net. I'm Kate Smalley. I'm a financial marketer, and you can find me and all my links at katesmalley.com. If you liked what you heard, please go to iTunes and leave us a fantastic review. It helps us, helps more people find the podcast. And if you really like what you heard, check us out at Patreon, Patreon slash Because Money, and uh, donate a small amount per podcast. It helps us keep the show running. Have a great week.